You're listening to the Brand Builders Podcast with your hosts, Scott Dunstan and Brian Young. Welcome to another episode of the award-winning Brand Builders Podcast powered by the Dunstan Group. My name is Brian Young. We are here with the president of the Dunstan Group, Scott Dunstan. And we are here with Greg Olson, who is the former tight end of your Carolina Panthers, a 14-year veteran of the National Football League, a future Hall of Famer with over 8,600 yards and 60 touchdowns. But that is not why we are here, right? We could talk football all day long, and he definitely won over our hearts on the football field. But it's what him and his family have done off the field, which should really be the story. And I know it's one that, that Greg wants to tell, and we're so excited to learn about it. Greg is a two-time finalist for the Walter, May- Walter Payton Man of the Year Award and founded the Hardest Yard Foundation after his son TJ was born with a critical congenital heart defect called hypoplastic left heart syndrome in 2012. After three open heart surgeries and a few other procedures, Taylor or TJ, excuse me, was given a second chance. And that's really what this Hardest Yard Foundation is all about. It helps families of children with heart defects get the care that they need. This year alone, this nonprofit donated $2.5 million to create the Hardest Yard Pediatric Cardiac Care Clinic at Levine Children's Hospital, which is amazing. If you ever get an opportunity to go over there, probably post-COVID, do that. Um, And we're so excited to have Greg on this podcast to talk about this charity, talk about what this community means to him, and really connect the businesses, the business leaders to this charity. How can you help them? And so thank you, Greg, for joining us on this episode of the Brand Builders Podcast. I appreciate you guys having me. I know that's not the easiest thing to say. You got congenital. Oh my gosh. I critical was, congenital heart. Yes. Hypopl- you nailed it. Thank you. I Very, was, you're like one of the few people I've ever met that on the first shot can say hypoplastic left heart syndrome. <laughs> I couldn't have done it. Yeah. Bro. It, couldn't be, it couldn't be a more difficult <laughs> word to say. I thought I was going to butcher it. I'm not no, going to lie. You, you, we crushed, it. you crushed it. So we're off to a good start. And yes. so everyone knows that was first take. Yes. There was no second take, third take. That was it. Thank you. That was really good. You're a pro, Brian. Thanks, man. That was you're really there, good. Been doing it for a while. Absolutely. So how is TJ these days? He's doing great. You know, if, if he ran in here right now, you would have no idea. It, you know, it's hard to believe that eight years ago uh, he was in the state that he was, you know, in Levine Children's Hospital fighting with everything he had, uh, tubes hanging out of him, op- you know, chest opened multiple times within the first couple weeks of his life. So he's doing awesome, goes to school, plays baseball, plays flag football. You, you would have You would have no idea what he's been through. So we're we're very fortunate. We're very thankful for the care that we've gotten. And, you know, we're just very, we're very lucky and blessed that he's where he is today. So I am, I'm a twin as well. Now I have a twin brother. Now we were born just completely healthy. You know, I just can't imagine what it would be like if you had a twin that was in that situation. So TJ does have a twin. How has that been watching them grow up, watching his sister see him battle that and go through all of that? And it's, and as a twin, people ask you all the time, what's it like being a twin? I'm like, I don't know. What's it like not being a twin? Right. You know what I mean? Um, it's just something that you're just connected with that person forever. And it's probably the feeling, the closest feeling I would say is a parent to your own kid, right? Even though it isn't your kid, it's like the closest sibling you could possibly ever have. How has that relationship been? I know we've seen him in our showroom and they seem like best friends. I'm just interested from that perspective. They are. It's it's really a unique bond. Exactly. You know what you had said from your experience, uh, Talbot, his twin sister, is like his mom, best friend, biggest rival, biggest enemy, but like all wrapped up in one. And, and nobody, when TJ's not feeling good or TJ's was in the hospital or he comes home you know, from one of his procedures or whatever, she is all hands on deck. She is meeting him at the door. She has signs hung up on his wall in his room. She has cookies and 
drinks and we have to sometimes be like, okay, Tal, he's real. <laughs> you know, like he's not one of your dolls. He's not a little, <laughs> he's real. We need to let him be. He just had surgery. He needs to rest. They, they have the most unique and unbelievable relationship. Um, I mean, even at this last time, we have an older son too, who's about a year and a half older than the twins. And, you know, the boys would always kind of be at each other and they're close in age and competing, you know, and all that. But it wasn't until Tate, my older my oldest son, came in and saw TJ in the hospital the last time he was there a little while back. And I think he was old enough to really wrap his head around like, wow, like what has he been through? He was, a, you know, Tate was 16 months old when TJ was really going through it. So I think now he was eight, nine years old, seeing TJ in the hospital, seeing him in the recovery room. And since then, his attention to him, his awareness and patience, all that has just completely flipped and for the better. And um, it's just amazing what kids can sense and what kids realize, even though at times they can fight like dogs and they tell each other they're not their best friends. And those, But when it all comes down to it, the, the love of twins especially is is like something you can't you can't even put words in that, that's incredible man and i tell you what so you did a phenomenal job on your retirement speech Thank we, you. we yes. all sat here and watched it yeah. matter of fact we were all sitting here crying i know man <laughs> making uh, me cry thank in the you office, for bro. everything you've yeah. done for our community and and i want to mention a quote you you said there you said you're forever indebted to this community this community helped keep you all intact levine uh Children's Hospital saved TJ's life, and it's the greatest place in the world that you hope you never have to step foot in. Yep. Could you talk a little bit about community and the support you had and more on Levine Ch Children's Hospital? You know, now after being here for 10 years and the relationships we have and the friends and the, you know, the lifelong friends and neighbors and the people in the Panthers and whatnot is one thing. But, you know, rewind 10 years ago, we had just gotten traded here we had played one season. You know, I got traded here in July of 2011. We got the diagnosis of TJ that off season. Of, so March, you know, March, April of 2012. So it wasn't, I wasn't here very long. We had, we did not have deep roots here. We, I didn't even know Levine Children's Hospital existed. You know, at the time we just had Tate. He wasn't even born here. He, we didn't use their doctors. He was, you know, nothing. And for the community to wrap their arms around our story, um, you know, when news got out about what, what, what was going to happen when TJ was born and the twins were born, the outpouring of support from people we had never met, people we didn't know very well, people we didn't know personally, both within the organization with the Panthers and across the city, across the state of North, you know, across the states and Carolinas. It was just, it really blew us away. And, you know, I wanted people to know at the retirement ceremony just how much we feel connected to this community. You know, we're out there every night on the ball fields, we're playing games, we're coaching other people's kids on our teams, we're coming across other teams in competition and some people don't like us and some people do, but you know, the foundation and 1500 people coming out for our charity events to run around Myers park and raise money, you know, we're just so indebted and we just feel such a connection to this community that we just love being out in it. We love being a part of it. And that's a big reason why, you know, we've decided now that even though I'm done playing, you know, this will be home. This is where we'll raise our kids. This is where our kids will go to school we'll continue to do everything we can to support Levine children's and just find more and more ways to give back to this community that's given so much to us. 
So tell us, um, I, I moved here in 2010 and I feel the same way about this community. I grew up in Atlanta and I felt like a number in Atlanta. I say that a lot on this podcast, but I feel like this community, it's a big city, but it has that small town feel, right? So it feels like, you know, even connecting with a Panthers player, connecting with a business leader, everyone has an opportunity to become passionate about something and wrap their arms around something and really make a difference in this city. It's sometimes it's a lot harder in a, in a larger city. So with this city specifically, and now you having your roots here with the Hardest Yard Foundation, with you guys creating the Pediatric Cardiac Care Clinic, which is amazing, by the way, what, what can we see from the foundation? What are your goals? Because one of the quotes you said, I think a few years after TJ had gone through this, it basically said, if I wasn't a football player and I didn't have the money to do this, TJ would be dead, right? They're, they're, I wouldn't be able to have the funds and, and, and be able to do that. I want to change that for people that might not have that money, that might, might not have to make that terrible decision or might not be able to support that. So what are your goals, not only through the charity, but for the next couple of years to continue to make that difference? And, and what can we see on the horizon? Yeah, I mean, we're, we're the first to admit, you know, we were very fortunate about the resources that we had. You know, we were able to fly all over the country before the twins were, were even born and, and meet with, you know, multiple different um, healthcare systems. And we flew up to Boston and met with their team of experts to, to get their picture of what our case looked like. Um, you know, we were able through other various connections to reach out and speak to other people on, on phones and, and conference calls throughout the country, all leading up to TJ being born. So by the time the twins were born, we were really prepared. That's not the reality for a lot of people, whether they have the resources to make those connections or to get those appointments, or maybe they just didn't have the prenatal care to even detect the, you know, the abnormality prior. A lot of babies are born, appear healthy at birth, and it's only after a few days of post-delivery that people notice something's wrong. And you just got to hope that you don't live in a very secluded rural part of the country and you have access to a, you know, a top-level trauma care or heart center. There's a lot of factors and a lot of it's just luck, you know, and you know, in, in our case, we were able to bring around the clock care in for TJ. Um, you know, that all came out of our dime. We, we were very fortunate that we were in a position to do that. But the reality was, and the entire genesis of the Hardest Yard in its original form was, okay, how do we bring that level of care that is required after the acute stages are done in the hospital? And that, that healthcare team says, okay, it's good to bring your child home for the first time after a month, two months, three months, whatever that time is. Okay, but now what? You know, parents are not doctors. Parents are not, we saw this year, parents are not teachers. Parents are parents, right? Their job is to love their child, nurture their child, but it's hard for them to bring high-level medical care for kids who have very serious, critical, complex heart problems, health problems in general. So we were able to bring in these nurses. We said, okay, that's what the hardest yard is. We are going to privatize this system. We are going to train these nurses. They are going to go into the homes <clears throat> on our, <clears throat> sorry, on our dime, and it doesn't matter where you live, it doesn't matter how much money you make, it doesn't matter if there's two families, two parents in the family, one parent, they both work, none work, we're not asking any of those questions. From a medical standpoint, do you need this level of care in the home? If the answer is yes, it's done. It's provided, take the hours, you'll never get a bill, you'll never get an invoice, you'll never have to worry about how you're gonna pay for it. And that was what the hardest yard was in the beginning. It's just grown and grown and grown to what you, you know, what you said earlier that we were in a position that we could continue to finance the original program, the in-home healthcare program. But now we were also through some of our fundraising and, and through our family, we were able to open the Hardest Yard Congenital Heart Center, which was really our big kind of legacy project to make a stamp and say, hey, how can we show people who come into this hospital every day what they mean to us when they walk in through those doors and they see 
the entire clinic is the Hardest Yard Congenital Heart Center. They know, wow, a, a family must feel so connected to this hospital to, to do something like this. And it's a 20,000 square foot state-of-the-art um, heart center. All the different subspecialties of the heart, of the heart program here in Levine's are all housed there. Um, it's really a, it's really a, a top notch state of the art facility. And, you know, where we go from there, I don't know. That was a big project, um, takes millions and millions of dollars to bring those to life. And, um, you know, once we kind of put that to bed and finish the fundraising and the pledge for that, we'll, like we always do, we turn to the hospital and we say, what do you need? You know, this isn't about us. This isn't about our family. This is about filling the gaps that the hospital identifies that their families need. And if we're in a position to fill those gaps, um, we'll do it. You mentioned it takes millions of dollars. How do you all go about doing your fundraising? So the re so when they asked us, originally the hospital said, hey, you know, let's make it the Olson family thing. And we said, you know what? That's not, it, it's not just the Olson family. Our, our foundation made that. And obviously my wife and I are big, you know, contributors to the foundation's ability to to donate and run events and we cover a lot of those costs ourselves and whatnot but it's about the hardest yard to us is really a community it's a community of people it's a community of other heart families it's business leaders it's small business owners it's major fortune 500 companies it's people across the spectrum who've connected to our story from its birth in 2012 and have been at our golf outings and have donated for the walter payton man of the year challenges and have run in our 5ks and have shown up at our galas or have just out of nowhere sent me a check with a note, saw your story, your story online, here's five grand. Like, wow. The amount of people who have connected to our story and therefore allowed the hardest yard to grow, we feel like we needed them to be recognized. So when, we, when it's the hardest yard congenital heart center at Levine Children's Hospital, it's our way of saying this is so much bigger than just the Olson family. We're a part of it. Obviously, we're the engine behind it that makes all this work. We're the ones unloading the boxes, and you're <laughs> right. bringing you 150 golf bags for you to put your lo put our logos on. But we just feel such an obligation to make sure we recognize that this is not just about us. This is so many other people's time, money, resources, donations, sponsorships, support, whatever. And we want them to know that we we don't take it for granted. You know, this is something that this was a community effort. The Hardest Yard is a community of people connected to this cause. And how cool is it for them to know that whether they gave a dollar or $100,000, how cool is it to know that their little piece went towards bringing something so significant to life? And I, I love that um, a lot of charities now are being very authentic from start to finish as far as where is your money going, right? I think there's a big, you know, kind of notion out there in the in the country that if you give to these large charities, you know, is 60% of it being used to the charity and 40 of it paying, you know, the salaries of these people, whatever it is. I understand that it costs money, but you guys are very transparent and authentic and when it comes to where does that money go? And you can go see it right now, right at Levine. You can see it. So I think that's really neat. I want to talk about statistics. So I'm at the age where all of my friends were all having kids. I have a three-year-old and a nine-month-old, and it seems like every day you can go on Facebook and see one of the friends that maybe you went to college with and, and something happened in the pregnancy. Yep. Um, it doesn't all have to be you know, heart issues, but what are the statistics around that? Because we did just have Camp Luck on the podcast as well, uh, which is a camp associated with with exactly what TJ is going through to, to bring people together. And it was amazing to hear that. But, you know, you hear two parents that both have kids that are going through it. You have a son that's going through it. How 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 often is this happening? Uh, and do you have any statistics around that? 
You know, specifically to what TJ has, you know, you're talking a thousand kids a year. So you're talking a very rare congenital. Now, heart disease in general, you know, congenital heart disease in general is the largest, unfortunately, the largest killer of of children in America. Heart Mm. disease is a huge problem. You know, obviously we see a lot with more adults, but just the congenital aspect of it, meaning you're born with it. These are, this isn't due to what you eat. It's not due to smoking. It's just, you're born with abnormalities within your heart is a serious, serious issue. You know, it's something that impacts so many more people. And I think now that we're a more connected society, right, with Facebook and social media and people's willingness to share, I don't, I, I don't, I can't speak to whether there's more cases than 20 years ago. I just think our ability to connect with other people and to hear their stories is just great. You know, it's just a different world that we live in now where, you know, any particular day, everybody has a voice that they can share and certain stories get more traction than others. So it is, it seems more and more often that, you know, we even hear from people in our, you know, circle of, you know, we have a friend that's going up to, you know, is going to Levine and seeing the doctors, would you mind talking to him? If I, the amount of people we've talked to from New York to California to Florida, kids my wife went to high school with, one of my, one of my wife's good friends from high school, um, he and his wife had a baby born not long before us with hypoplastic right heart syndrome just it's the same condition just flipped to the other side of the heart it's just it's a really small world once you enter into it you know it breaks your heart uh, all you can all we ever hope is that people have an outcome similar to ours you know unfortunately that's not always the reality you know and we hear from those people all the time and we try to do what we can to support them and advise them and give them comfort and give them hope and um you know, at some point, a lot of people did that for us. You know, when we were coming up, I, I had a, a guy that I played with up in Chicago, Charles Tillman. He actually played here for a year, Peanut, the year we went to the Super Bowl. Um, when I was a rookie, my first or second year in Chicago during training camp, he, um, he, his daughter was born with a really serious heart condition, ended up having a heart transplant. And um, they were super involved and they were a huge resource. His wife and, and, and Charles were huge resources for Karen and I. We would talk to them multiple times a week, Kara, you know, and, and, and Charles's wife would, would text and, and talk and they were a huge resource to us, you know. So now we kind of feel like passing that baton, right? So now it's our time it's our turn now to to lead other people through what is a what is a difficult road. So the connection of this world um, is changing and we're just trying to find more and more ways to to get that story out. Do you find it hard? We've had a lot of, of parents on our podcast that have lost their kids to cancer or lost their kids to things that you kind of sit back and go like, that's not fair. You know, now that I have two kids, I just can't even imagine it. But there's also the grieving part of it can be different from not only the dad or the mom or or really anybody. Did you feel when this happened that it was this like, all right, we're going to tackle this mentality. Like we're taking this head on and were you and Kara kind of on the same side or did you guys kind of grieve differently? And how can you give advice to parents that maybe they aren't going to going to tackle it the same way. Maybe every day is going to be a little bit different, but ultimately the goal needs to be to be together to do everything you can for your kid. It's very hard on the family. You know, everyone, like you said, everyone grieves differently. Um, you know, men and women, husband, wives, sometimes the wife is the real strong, stable one. And the father is the one who kind of loses it a little bit or vice versa. There's, there's no perfect way to grieve. There's no perfect, there's no, you know, guide to how to go through stuff like this when it's your own kid. Um, I think everybody finds their path and finds their lane a little differently. I know for Kara and I, we definitely did. We each had our turns where the other one was having some weak moments, whether it was in the hospital or the anxiety of leading up to the delivery. And other times it was flipped. 
you know, I, I think the biggest thing that we took from this is once we kind of came out the other end and we got TJ through his first couple surgeries and we were able to kind of catch our breath, you know, our the motivation that we had to say, okay, there's something missing here, right? Like it was so hard for us. What must this be like for everybody else? And, and just that kind of light bulb went off and we said, we've got to find something. We've got to do something in this world to make it just a little bit better even for one kid. We're not going to change the world but we can help one family. And fortunately, that one family has turned into hundreds and thousands of families, thankfully. But in the beginning, it was literally, let's just change the path for the next person to come down this road after us. And let's just start there and see where it goes. And we had great partners with the hospital and, and it was just such a great healing you know, avenue for us that we could pour ourselves into servicing these other families and pour ourselves into growing the foundation and making mistakes and doing events that didn't work or, you know, just finding our way to what was the best thing for the families and what was the best thing for the hospital. And we've done, we've learned a lot. You know, we've done some things that we thought were super important that turned out to be wrong and things that we didn't think were important now is the inspiration behind our projects. You know, it's just the whole thing is such a fluid process. But at the end of the day, the main central theme was what is in the best interest of the families coming behind us? Let's pour ourselves into this and let's use what's been a difficult few years Let's spin this around and now use it for a lifetime of good of good. And um, that's what we're trying to do. And some days are better than others, right? I mean, we're not, we're not perfect at this, but we're, uh, we're doing the best that we can. And it's been very fulfilling. With you being a pro athlete, how do you feel about fear? And does fear set into you uh, in this scenario with your family? And how do you deal with that? Yeah, so if we were sitting here with like a, a sports psychologist, they would try to flip your brain because I've, I've sat with them with teams and individually, they, the healthy way for humans to, to function is to not function through fear. It's, it's, a very, um, it's a very natural, instinctive, motivational factor for all of us, um, you know, back to our Stone Age days. But they, sports psychologists, especially, you know, for athletes at a high level, they don't want that, right? Fear creates compulsion and it creates bad habits and it creates, in, you know, just quick snap judgments. But yes, I think fear is what everyone is constantly running from, right? It's, it's in the, you know, I was fearful if I went out to that game that if I didn't play well, like my job was on the line, my career was on the line, my team was going to struggle. Like that motivated me, like the fear of letting people down, the fear of not reaching the expectations I knew I had and potential that I had and fear of letting my kids down and fear. All of those things are running through your brain. That's natural human instincts. It's unhealthy. It's not good for you, but it's real. And I think all professional athletes, especially, I know me personally, battled that every day, mm -hmm. that insecurity of it's nothing's good enough, nothing's good enough, nothing's good enough. Now, it's really good in your professional life, right? You're never satisfied. And living that every day for 20 years is exhausting, but it's really powerful. Every day I would wake up there's got to be something more I can do. I can't fall behind. I can't let this guy take my job. I can't let the guy down down in the other team be better than me. He's not better than me. It's exhausting, right? It's a 24-hour yeah. loop. From the moment you wake up until the moment you go to bed, it's, a, it's just a loop running. But it's bad for your personal life, right? It's bad <laughs> for a marriage. It's bad for your kids. Like, you can't. Finding that balance took a lot of time. Having the kids, going through the stuff with TJ – there's no, I always tell people, there's no coincidence that my career really took off 
right around the time we went through this with TJ because I was finally in a position where I had to compartmentalize. I had to be football when it was football, but when it was time to be home, football had to stop. Mm-hmm. And I needed to be dad and I needed to be in the hospital making decisions with doctors and sleepless nights on the hospital bed as my wife laid in the bed and I was on a cat. Like, like football stopped for eight hours, 10 hours a day for the first time in my life. And it was good for me. It was a good checkout. So now I knew when I got back to football the next day, I made the most of it because I knew once I left, I had other things I had to do. It was like a great escape. It wasn't just this never ending football, 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 football. Mm-hmm. And my career took off. And I don't think there's any coincidence to that. It's really interesting. Thank you for sharing yeah. that. That is. Yeah. And I I mean, it's interesting. So I, I played a sport in college. I played, I played college soccer and I was a goalkeeper. And a lot of people talked about the fear of being a goalkeeper. If you make a mistake, like it's a goal no matter what. Right. Um, but the reality of it is, is that I never was fearful of that mistake. But at the same time, I always wanted to be better. I always wanted to be better. But then you take that and you have to push that into business, which is a lot different than being out on the football field. Like I can imagine like the rush you get from playing football is hard to duplicate on a normal day when you're doing business. But you have to be able to transition that to be successful and to be the parent and and the leader in this community that you are. Um, I want to transition this into so the hardest yard ways that people can help you. So you have developed a great team. Samantha's awesome that supports you um, in the hardest yard. And you guys have a lot of great events coming up. I know one thing that everybody loved in Charlotte were the beanies that you guys did with the Carolina Panthers. They'd be gone about three seconds. They're in high demand. Uh, high demand. I actually I need I, one, by the way. I wore one <laughs> to a Lowe's. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. I wore <laughs> one to Lowe's. Uh, and this lady walked up and she's like, do you have any extra ones of those? I'm like, yeah, I just got a, like a whole car load. Come on down. <laughs> yeah. I'll help you out. But um, that we was a, a really we have a few in the office. Yeah. I think we can probably. Awesome. Yeah, there we go. There, so there, it, that's cool. But you guys do 5Ks, cookie sales, and you have a golf tournament that's coming up. Uh, tell us right now, not only how can people get in touch with you for the golf tournament, if, if there is some more room, but what do you need from this community? What do you need from business leaders uh, and how can they support the hardest yard the best way uh, that we can here in Charlotte? Yeah, I think it's there's it's a multi-pronged you know, approach, right? So our, our fundraising path outside of our family's contributions, right? The public, the forward-facing, consumer-facing ways that we generate money are our events, right? So we have the golf outing, we have the 5K, we have pop-up stores, we have um, a few years back. Again, COVID has really changed everything. We were really rolling 2019. We had golf, we had the 5K, we had our Fit Fest, which was like a really cool, um, we had, what, 800 800 people show up. We did it at the Panthers indoor stadium, indoor practice facility. And it was like a fit fitness thing slash food trucks and beer trucks. It was, it was awesome. 2020, obviously everything just stopped. So now we're kind of starting back from scratch. We got our golf outing. Okayed. We're a little limited on capacity. We have to do two shotgun starts because of group sizes and whatnot. So that looks a little bit different, but we were able to almost get back everybody from 2020 who had signed up before we had to cancel, kind of just rolled it forward and kept joining. So we're fortunate that we picked back up where we left off there. The 5K is still not back in person. When we were booking, when we were planning this a few months back, we couldn't, we, no one could predict what May was going to look like at the time. Looking back, we probably could have gotten away with it. Things have gotten a little bit better, but when we were, book, when we were looking into this back in December and January to get ahead of it, yeah. We, ha- we were just nervous that if we went through all the steps of making it an in-person race again, canceling now for the second year in a row would have been really hard. Lose momentum. Yeah, so we said, you know what, we're going to go virtual. And we've actually done some really cool things to just engage with people virtually. Um, you know, there's different uh, – right now we're doing like a signed, uh, signed football giveaway for people who re- reach multi- um, certain levels of fundraising. Um, 
a couple of weeks ago, it was actually really cool. A, a friend of mine is a really famous, a popular chef up in New York City. Um, he did like a private cooking class. So for anybody who reached a certain fundraising threshold, they automatically qualified. And for like an hour, one night during the week, we sent them the recipes and ingredients and whatnot. And everyone joined like a Zoom cooking class. And this chef took everybody through. So like, we're just trying to find like exciting ways to motivate people to fundraise for our 5K, galvanate their groups, um, put people together, individually fundraise, fundraise as teams. And um, so that's gone pretty well considering there's no actual race. And then um, on the day of the actual 5K um, in May, we're gonna like, we're gonna ask people to go out and log your log your 3.2 miles and let us know on social and post it or whatever. But there will be no actual in-person 5K. We're hoping that this is the last time I ever have to say that, and that going forward so we can get back in life. But yeah, we we have some really cool things. And then the the last piece, which is non-event based, is just through corporate relationships, right? So we've been very fortunate over the years, aside from from companies that sponsor our golf outing or buy foursomes or you know whatever. We've been very fortunate to develop some really nice relationships with some, with both family-owned small business and some large-scale Fortune 500 community, you know, build people that you'd see their buildings around town, right? And people that understand and connection to both healthcare, maybe just in general, but also people who really understand the world of congenital heart. And so there's a lot of different ways that we connect with people, but those are really our main prongs of of connection and fundraising. So. Anybody that has a passion for the healthcare space, anybody that has a connection or a passion for helping children, regardless, um, you know, we feel like we're the group for you, you know, and um, it's hard. It's a competitive world. There's, a, there's only a handful, you know, there's only so many dollars out there and everyone's fighting for them. And uh, there's no cause that's not worthy of your dollar, right? So to be able to make ours stand out and say, hey, here's what we're doing. You talked about transparency. You know, we're, we're, here's what we do. Here's where our money goes. We post it on our website. We have a financials tab. Please, we want you to go look at our tax returns. We want you to go look at our 990s. Go see what we're doing and with what. Um, and we feel like that's the best way to, to have people trust you is just to be open and honest with when you make a mistake, when you do something wrong, and when you do something right. If they want uh, to get in touch with you, business leaders are listening to this right now, what's the best way to get in touch with you or the foundation? Yeah, so they can go to our foundation, www.r4r.org. It's r, the number four, r.org. Um, there's contact, you can contact us through the website, um, through email, or you can leave a note on the website that we'll respond to. So we're pretty easy to get in contact with. I think most people around have some way of getting in touch with us. Uh, we hear from people all the time. So we would welcome anybody who wants to have a conversation, maybe get a better understanding of what we're doing. Um, where our money goes, what our passions are, maybe a little more about our story. We're, we're always happy to connect with those people because we feel like the more we get in front of people and share the why behind this, people really start understanding like why we're doing this, you know, and it's not just people out there putting their name on something. This is something that's really near and dear to our hearts and something we put a lot of time and effort into. What's your fundraising goal this year? Well, if you asked me that a year or two ago, I would have had, a, you know, I would have told you a million dollars, you know, yeah. but, you know, COVID really put us to a halt, you know, mm -hmm. so, you know, Karen and I, you know, obviously tried to fill some of that, that Delta a little bit with some of the fundraising goals. So uh, to be honest with you, I, I'm not sure, you know, there was a while there when we were really rolling that we were between 800 and a million dollars a year mm -hmm. of donated, you know, of, of right. giving. Um, we have very little overhead, uh, the majority of our admin stuff, Kara and I just, we pay that on the side. We keep that off the books of the, 
you know, SAM and employees and office space, you know, the, the foundation money doesn't go towards that. We, we subsidize all of that to try to maximize each dollar. And, um, you know, for, for years we were really rolling, you know, and I, you know, I'd say this year, if we can get back to the $500,000, I think that would be a really good bounce back, you know, yeah. and then start chipping our way back up close to a million, I think would be, um, would be something that we'd feel proud of considering 2020. We, oh, you, know, yeah. you know, you're talking multiple six figures of golf. You're talking six, fig, you know, multiple six figures of 5k goes to zero. Yeah. You know, yeah. it's just, it's just, you know, but again, it was not just us. It's the whole, the whole world. It is. It's, you know, 100%. for profit. I don't, you know, I'm yeah. sure you guys oh, yeah. felt it. For profit, yeah, nonprofit. Did. It didn't matter what you were, right? The world stopped for six months. That's right. And certain areas picked back up faster than others. But for a while there, we were all stuck in pause, you know, and we'll, we'll figure it out. Oh, we're, yeah. We're going to do it. So basically, we're calling out all the construction and mortgage companies out there. We know y'all had a damn good year last year. <laughs> yeah, tell me. So about let's it. let's pull out them checkbooks. That's right. And let's it's write your one. Turn. It's your turn. No. <laughs> well, this has been awesome. Before we we let you go, we we do want to jump into to one quick thing. So you are going to start something new in the fall. You're going to be on TV. Uh, tell us about that journey. Something that you're excited about. And I know we uh, we we had a conversation. And I said, so, hi, man, you're enjoying retirement. And you're like, I'm more busy now than I was when I was playing football. <laughs> I am. You know, because for all the things for the last 15 years that I had like a built-in excuse that, oh, now is not the right time. It's not a good time. I, I can't do it. You know, if it wasn't getting ready for the season or something with my wife and kids and the foundation, I just said no. But now, like, I have all this stuff that I've been putting <laughs> off. But a lot of it is stuff I want to do. You know, a lot of it, you know, coaching the kids teams and bounce yeah. driving from field to field to field six seven days a week and trying to balance all of that um you know we're trying to grow our little baseball team who you guys know a lot about because you do all of our gear and logos and stuff and i call you three days before a game and i'm like <laughs> i need a jersey with the kid's name on it because you know we lost his other one i need you to quick screen print it and you guys always come through for me but um you know we're, it, you. it's all fun stuff but yeah in the fall i'm gonna i'm gonna start working with fox I'm going to be one of their broadcasters and, and call their game. So that'll be an exciting new challenge. You know, I don't know what that's going to look like and be my first, you know, I've, I've done it a handful of times just here and there, but first time carrying a full slate of games for the whole fall, but, uh, but a new challenge, something that'll keep me engaged in the game, something that'll keep me, you know, motivated each week to have something to prep for. I think my wife's probably more excited about it than anything. I think me asking her when we're going to go to breakfast and when we're going to go to lunch and what does she have to do? She's like, I have things to do. <laughs> I'm, I'm busy. Dude. I don't just sit around. Like, you need can to you find go some, back and play football? Can you go please? back and yeah. find something to do? So I think she's going to be, um, she's going to be happy that I'm going to have something to do. But yeah, I'm I'm plenty busy. That's I uh, awesome. but for the first time I get to to do things a lot of things that I want to do, which is awesome. Do you know what like time slots you'll be? Are you going to be on just Sundays or what's the what's the the schedule? Yeah, so the schedule is like a four a rolling four weeks. So they'll they'll book out the broadcast teams, you know, based on games and schedules and records and who's good and who's not good and whatever. And they'll map out like roughly every four weeks. So they'll say, all right, for the next four weeks, you're going to go to Chicago, Carolina, Minnesota, and New York. All right, and then, you know, a couple of weeks later, they'll give you the next four. And it, it all just varies on, you know, who's winning, who's losing. And then they try to put their, their teams in the appropriate games. And, you know, there's a whole science behind it. But, yeah, you, you typically only know, like, the next few weeks out. That's so interesting because whenever I see, like, I'm watching teams, you always, like, see who's going to be announcing it. Obviously, Tony Romo's done, like, an amazing job yep. recently. Yep. So whenever he gets thrown on a call, you're like, this is going to yeah, be so awesome. They, so he's the number one guy. Yeah. So, like, they'll get the number one CBS game and yep. then – Joe Buck and Aikman get the number one 
yep. Fox game, and then you know they kind of go down the list. So it's pretty cool. Yeah, that is cool. Congratulations. Well, that's awesome. Yeah, that's awesome. Appreciate yeah, it, guys. Awesome. Thanks. Thank well, you. Greg, thank you so much uh, for joining us on on this Brand Builders podcast. You know, if you are listening, please like, share, comment. Go check out the Hardest Yard. Go to r four r dot r four r dot org and um, and donate. See how you can get involved. It's amazing that we have a. A guy that did so much for not only for the football team, but also off the football field. Stay in this city. We've seen that happen with a lot of people that move into this city. They fall in love with it. And Charlotte is home. And um, I'm just so excited to have you as a community or a member of our community. Honestly, Greg, it's it's great to uh, to have kind of the same feeling that you do that I have about Charlotte. It's yeah. like it, it just you don't have to necessarily play for the Panthers to fall in love with the city or for it to be home. And I think there's a lot of people that have that same feeling. No so thank you for everything that you do. Thank you, Sam. Thank you, Kara. Thank you, all the boys and the girls that you have as well. And uh, I hope TJ's journey continues to, to be one of, um, of an uplifting, positive, you know, kind of spirit. And, uh, just thank you so much for everything that you've done. Appreciate you guys. Thanks for everything. Appreciate you having me on. This was awesome. And, uh, I just dropped off 50 boxes of things. So I appreciate you guys. <laughs> we got work to do. Yeah. Back to work. Let's go. Well, I guess there's no weekend for us. Yeah. No, I'm just kidding. No. Thanks, Thanks guys. Greg. I appreciate you Thanks, guys. Buddy. You guys have been You're awesome. The man. Thank you. Thanks. You've been listening to the Brand Builders Podcast, brought to you by the Dunstan Group with your host, Scott Dunstan and Brian Young. For branded merchandise and apparel that makes first impressions and ones that last, check out the Dunstan Group at dunstangroup.com.